It is another opportunity that God has allowed each of us to assemble and to gather on this Lord's Day afternoon. And as thankful as we each are for that privilege, how blessed it is that we can, of course, encourage one another in that which is the single faith that the God of heaven has set forth. It's always a blessing for the membership as well as any visitors and other guests who've come our way. And it's our trust that the service will be done in spirit and in truth. And in every aspect, what shall be lifted high is exactly what the Lord has declared. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. That refrain of Colossians 3 verse 17. Brother Glenn has just led us in a song in, for which the first two words of the opening verse were of one. Coincidentally, or perhaps not so much, you'll notice that was the very subject that I've selected to entitle the lesson tonight. That was not coincidental. Brother Glenn always, as well as all the song leaders, do a masterful job at selecting songs as much as they know that conforms to the nature of the title that I have selected as well as also the lesson that that shall be presented. Always thankful for the men that lead our singing and all the other aspects of the service as well. As you think about of one, a few initial thoughts perhaps to guide us on to what the characteristics will be for the lesson before us. We each know it well that there are so many characteristics that describe members of the human family. Each of us are so unique in many ways. Our differences are often, in fact, what is highlighted. So much so that those differences are often used to discriminate. Those differences are often used to make divisions and great distinctions between individuals. Often those divisions and those characteristic distinctions have been the source of hatred and great deal of wrath and evil things done by one group of people against another one. Sometimes distinctions are made on the basis of height. A person who is tall often is looked upon in such a way that he or she has not the advantages of one who is a bit shorter. And by the same token, sometimes those that are too short seemingly come up to the point where they too are disadvantaged. For others, you might appreciate it's the color of their skin. Those who perhaps are black in skin color, those that are brown, those that are yellow, those that are red, those that are white sometimes meet disadvantages due to the prejudice of somebody else. In all of those ways, we can even appreciate that those differences, as I mentioned earlier, can sometimes lead to great acts of evil. Maybe you remember the riots that took place in Los Angeles in 1992. That was in our very own country, prompted by the characteristic of difference between the color of skin and the behavior due to ethnic differences. To say all of that is to say, isn't it true that the human family quite often is very good at noticing the differences? And sometimes not only noticing them, but using them as a basis to discriminate against somebody else. Isn't it amazing though that that text Greg read a moment ago from Acts 17, 26? Paul in majestic language stood in Athens about 20 centuries ago now and had the nerve to proclaim of one. What did Paul mean by that? What might you and I take from that even today? Let's develop that thought more carefully as we move through the lesson this evening. And in so doing, notice several bases on which, oddly enough, the human family stands on equal ground. The differences are not the thing to be noticed. It's the fact of what unites us. 
As we look at that, let's begin the lesson in this way. First, let's observe three characteristics. We noted, in fact, one of them, at least in passing this morning. Let's occupy that thought a bit more fully and begin like this. There is, of course, a powerful truth in the Bible, isn't it, that there is an equality for all of us on the basis of sinful behavior. All are guilty of this thing termed sin. Isn't it interesting that, again, so often we note the differences in people, the color of their skin, the height of their stature, how much they may weigh, when all the while the Bible tells us this is a common factor. When you think about the nature of that sin, even from the days of the Old Testament onward, it is a powerful truth that every individual accountable in age is guilty of sin. In 1 Kings 8 verse 46, in the days of the ancient past, Solomon, in the powerful and rather eloquent way that was his gift, stood before the people of that day and rather powerfully said, This is thy people, God, the people of Israel. Solomon stated they had been so richly blessed. He also stated that they, from time to time, would turn their attention from the God of heaven. But on that occasion, he said, There is no man that sinneth not. And how truthfully Solomon made that statement. Even he understood that himself, his children, his family, and yea, all the elders of Israel were also guilty of being, being guilty of sin. When we arrive at the New Testament, nothing has changed. For isn't it still declared in Romans 3.23, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. To amplify that point somewhat more fully, do we not see Paul very clearly making reference to basically every class of accountable being that's found in the opening three chapters of the Roman letter? In Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, Paul directed his attention especially as subject material to those that were Gentiles. And from that verse until the very closing verse of that chapter, he made a listing of various sins of which the Gentiles were guilty. You might remember some of them. They included idolatry, homosexuality, as well as any number of other things. And as he concluded that list, he made careful note, these are those things of which the Gentile race and the Gentile peoples have been guilty. They have ignored the God that made them. They've turned their attention from the truth He gave them. Their minds have been darkened due to the blackness of their failure to turn to God. All the while, as he made a listing of those things, I'm sure the Jews began to feel a bit noteworthy. After all, we aren't guilty of those things, they might have said. However, you'll notice that in the very next chapter, Romans 2 verse 1, Paul turns his attention to the Jews. You might recall that in that opening verse of that chapter, to them he said, Therefore thou art inexcusable, whosoever thou art that judgest, for, when, for wherein thou judgest another... Thou condemnest thyself, because thou art guilty of the same things. And all at once we notice that these Jews, who perhaps had felt prideful, who perhaps had felt rather blessed, and who perhaps felt a closeness to God, Paul in sternness said, You too are sinners. You too have turned your back on the very God that loved you. And furthermore, you have ignored the commandments that He gave you. Whether Jew or Gentile, all were sinners. I've included on the wall a few of the examples that we find scattered through the Old Testament highlighting 
the sins of everybody. Consider the Jew, or rather the Gentiles for just a moment. Think back to the book of Jonah for just a minute. Here was that little four-chapter minor prophet book. In that book, we find God commissioning Jonah to go to Nineveh and proclaim against it, cry against it, he said. Why? Because their wickedness has come up before me. The wickedness of who? The Ninevites. Who are the Ninevites? Gentiles. Here were Gentiles guilty of wickedness, guilty of sin. Remember, they were under the system known as patriarchy. They weren't given the law of Moses. They were never beneath that law. But nonetheless, they were guilty of wickedness. We note the guilt of the Gentiles. You notice in Habakkuk chapter 2, the Assyrians also, and the Babylonians as well. Again, Gentiles guilty of sin. When we come to appreciate God's own people, the people of Israel, how often were they guilty of sin? Wasn't it a sad refrain when Moses, before he died, he told them, The day is coming. You, due to your wickedness and your iniquity, will be separated from God, and into captivity you shall go. That's strange, isn't it? They had just come out of Egyptian captivity not many years before, and now he said, You're headed to more captivity because of your sin. Perhaps you can see with me then that whether it be Jew or Gentile, that sin was such a common matter and each one needed to understand it. Maybe Jeremiah stated it so powerfully. In the second chapter of that book that goes by his name, Jeremiah 2 verse 13, the noble prophet said, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We can almost hear tears streaming down Jeremiah's face as he had to make a statement like that to them. My people have committed two evils. They forsook God on the one hand, and they have replaced what God said with something else on the other. In essence, two mistakes for the price of one. As you also notice, 19 verses later in the same chapter again we see, can a maid forget her ornaments, or a bride her attire? Yet my people, God said, have forgotten me days without number. These were God's people, and they had forgotten Him. When you contemplate the nature of all of that, no wonder Jesus could say in Mark 2, verses 14 to 17, that He came as the great physician. And those that are well don't need the physician, but it's those that are sick. All men then are in need of the physician. All of us today are still in need of the soul-saving medicine that the physician is able to offer. At the very bottom of that slide, then, I tried to state it like this. All of us are equal in this, equal in reality to sin. For there is none righteous, no, not one. But that statement leads us to yet another in which we all are equal. You'll notice here that we're thus all in need of salvation. Every one of us. It matters not the place in which we may have been born. It matters not the language that we may speak. It matters not the place that we may call home in terms of continent or country. All are in need of a Savior. All are in need of salvation. And let's build that point in the following way. Paul stood there in Acts the 17th chapter. That's the very chapter in which our lesson text came this evening. In the verses that followed it, there came a time when Paul had this to say. 
The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because He hath appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, whereof He hath given assurance unto all men in that He hath raised Him from the dead. We thus see that Paul, 20 centuries ago now, stated the absolute requirement that all must repent. That includes you and me, the man across the street, the lady that lives just down the way. All of us must repent. What a great equalizer is the gospel plan of salvation. And what a great characteristic in which all of us are on level ground at the foot of the cross. None of us need to feel advantaged in that regard, for all of us are in need of the same method of salvation. Jesus is the key, for didn't He say... I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Verse 6 of John 14. And how eloquently Peter made the point in Acts 4 verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I would invite you to reflect just a moment upon the scene of the second chapter of Acts. It was there that we noticed, beginning in verse number 5, there was a lengthy list of various countries of people represented on that day. You might recall the inspired writer has listed there for us at least 15 different nationalities of people, from Rome all the way to Cappadocia and everywhere in between. And yet, when Peter proclaimed the unsearchable riches of Jesus that day, when he proclaimed the grandeur and beauty of the truth... The same gospel was intended for each and every one of them. With the nature of that gospel and with the thoroughness of what was set before them that day, how rich indeed were the spectacle of obedience to that truth. That oneness perhaps also is seen as you and I apply it today. We know that these continents around the earth have hundreds of countries scattered upon them and the gospel is needed by every one of them be they American, Russian, Argentine, South African, South American, Australian, it doesn't matter. All of them need the gospel. Isn't it an amazing thing to think about the universality of the gospel of Jesus Christ? In the days of the Old Testament, it was the children of Israel who were especially chosen by God and they were the recipients of that law of Moses. But now, every person on earth is in need of this message. That universality, that central feature, that characteristic brings us to the bottom points on that slide. Paul was able to say in Acts 15.9 that the very same gospel plan of salvation they obeyed is the same ones we do. And he was using Gentile versus Jew. Today, every person on that list, no matter what country they're from, is in need of the single message you and I have been so blessed to hear. No wonder it yearns in our heart to see the work of our missionary friends and those who come back and tell us about the success that so often the gospel has had in regions far, far from here. But doesn't that remind us that even those that live near here are also in need of hearing it? Your neighbors and your friends, those that here live just within a stone's throw of the building, they too need the soul-saving message of the gospel. They too need to hear the same thing presented in the Word of God. When you think about the need of that salvation, doesn't it bring us to yet something else in which we see such inequality? 
this equality stated in the wording of the church. We've been building to this point in many ways throughout the lesson all the way to this point. When you think about the church, consider it like this with me. The human family scattered all across this great earth on which you and I live. So many hundreds of different languages are spoken. People live in many different circumstances, some of which would be not only distasteful but extremely unpleasant to you and me. But yet there is a consensus. There is a unity in need for the church. There is but one church. Jesus Himself was able to teach in Acts, or rather in John 17, verses 20 and 21. He so powerfully uttered on the night prior to His crucifixion, Neither pray I for these alone, but for all them which shall believe on Me through their word, that they may be one, even as Thou, Father, art in Me, and I in Thee, that they may believe that Thou hast sent Me. Later we find that Paul, in such a dramatic way, was able to say there is one body and one spirit even as you're called and one hope of your calling. And that settles it, doesn't it? There is but one body. The human family has so often had a desire to appreciate a multitude of bodies, a large number of bodies, those that meet our personal requests and interests and preferences, but it was never so. Human hands never touched the body of Christ. The blood of Christ purchased it, Acts 20, 28, and Jesus Himself promised to build it, Matthew 16, 18. And it came into being in the very way, on the very day, that the Scripture said that it did. And all individuals are in need of that body, the body of Christ. When you think about the nature of that kingdom, I would invite you to think about some of the characteristics then about the differences in people that sometimes have led to issues in the body of Christ. There are those that have skin color that's white, like you and me. There are those that have red skin color and brown skin color and black skin color and various shades in between. And yet the church is for every one of them. The church is for all. Sometimes we sing the song, Eat as we have already done tonight. The gospel is for all. And the church, as our blessed Savior organized and set it forth, indeed it is for all. Isn't it a sweet thing to contemplate then this very day? There have been brothers and sisters in Christ who have met in various cities around the world and though their skin color was very different than yours and mine and though they spoke a different language than you and me and though they perhaps met in very different circumstances, they worshiped the same God, they partook of the communion in the same way we did, they sang a cappella singing just as you and I have done and they prayed to the God of heaven just as fervently and just as faithfully as we have done. Those brothers and sisters we appreciate and love, for we're all, in fact, in that same kingdom. Didn't Jesus say, I am the vine and you are the branches? John 15, verses 1 to 8. And only in that way are we able to bring forth much fruit unto God. The highlighted feature of that then begs us to ask, what about other differences? Sometimes there are those that are wealthy in the things of this world. And sometimes there are those that are poverty-stricken in the things of this world. Would those that are poor feel welcome at Pippin? Would a black family feel welcome here? Would others that have other distinctions to you and me feel welcome? Hopefully they would. We trust that they would. It's our desire that they should. 
it is in that regard I would invite you to think about some of the characteristics to which all these things point us. The marvelous sense of unity and oneness that comes in the church. The very last section of the lesson, and it's the lengthiest section, but let's revisit Acts the 17th chapter. And let's look at more carefully that phrase that the inspired apostle used. You remember the scene that as Paul on that second missionary journey, he came to the city of Athens. And we might recall as he came to that location and place, immediately verse 16 reminds us his spirit was stirred within him because he saw all the idolater statues that had been erected. The stirring of Paul's spirit did not leave him quiet, but rather in the very next verse into the synagogue he went and reasoned with them. He disputed with them, it says, daily. So much so it was his earnest desire to help them understand the error of this idolatry and, of course, the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. He spoke to them about the resurrection. He spoke to them about Jesus. He spoke to them about the truth of God. As you and I might expect, there were some who heard very openly. They seemingly were excited about the message, and even as the chapter unfolds, they obeyed it. But also there were some who were opposed to it. In fact, they worked against Paul. They not only opposed, they resisted the truth that he had set forth. It seems there were others that were yet in the middle. They didn't know quite what to make of what Paul taught. Some were interested, some were not, but they did want to hear more about it. So they took Paul to that place in the city of Athens in which speakers were often wont to, to present themselves. It's called the Areopagus. In the ancient city of Athens, there was an amphitheater region. This is where the scholars and the philosophers and others would present themselves, and individuals would sit and listen as these individuals spoke about their philosophy, spoke about their beliefs, spoke about their doctrines. They brought Paul to the Areopagus, and there on Mars Hill, he spoke one of the greatest sermons in the New Testament. Beginning in the middle part of that chapter, Paul, in fact, began by saying about their idolatry, and he said, The God that you call the unknown God, let me tell you about Him. Let me, in fact, speak to you language like this. I would invite you to read with me the context of that statement. In Acts 17, beginning in verse number 23, Paul said, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything seeing He giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord if happy they should feel after Him, and find Him though He be not far from every one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. 
pausing at that point at the conclusion of verse number 29, we notice that in the midst of that statement was verse 26, in which again it says, "...and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth." An incredible statement of unison and unity. And you'll notice one of the statements that I have tried to include on the slide is the very wording of the King James translation that we just read together. But you'll notice beyond that I've tried to assert the actual Greek text or what is in fact closer to the original language. And you'll notice it simply reads, "...made from one every nation of men to dwell on the earth." Made of one... You can easily tell that it was a highlighted point of Paul's lesson that day, that he was striving to help them see the unity that characterized the human family. I stated at the outset of the lesson the differences that seemed to divide us, everything from language to skin color and everything in between, but yet Paul highlighted in a strong feature that which is in fact together. Specifically, that phrase, of one, it comes from the Greek words ek enos, and literally it means from one male. That enos is in fact masculine in its gender, and thus Paul said, of one male. Every one of the members of that group gathered in Athens that day. Every one of the individuals there, be they man or woman, boy or girl, young or old or anywhere in between, from one male they had come. It seems Paul clearly had in mind an initial reference to what takes us back to the opening two chapters of the Bible. The fact that every human being that there is on earth can be traced and shall spring from that initial creation of Adam at the very beginning of one. And that sense of unison should in fact help us appreciate that we have far more in common than what may appear on the surface. This statement of one takes us to appreciate, quite frankly, there was even another element of unison some 1,656 years later, not only in Adam but also in Noah. The entirety of the human family destroyed all but, seven, all but eight. Noah, his wife, their three sons and their three wives in the wording of Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8. That unison reminds us then that all ethnicities, all languages, all skin colors, all characteristics sprang from a commonness in the distant past. That hasn't gone unnoticed in the wording of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. He said specifically the first man, and all of us sprang from the first man. Isn't it interesting that that unison perhaps could be developed even more thoroughly in the language of what's on this last slide. As you appreciate then in Jesus, what was it Paul said in Galatians 3 verse 28? He stated there, There is neither bond nor free, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. The unison that we enjoy in Jesus, the unity that we in fact have in that one body, the church, Highlighted in that verse as well as in Colossians 3 verse 11. Where there Paul was able to say that there is neither Scythian, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, circumcision or uncircumcision. We in fact still are that one. 
that unison that you may have noted in the wording of Acts 17, 26, the King James translators have put one word in that verse, and you may have noted it as you looked at that other Greek rendering just a moment ago. The King James wording reads it, and hath made of one blood. The word blood is not in the most ancient of manuscripts. Rather, again, the text simply says, of one. But maybe in light of that, we could at least think briefly about the character of one other great need, and that is the one blood of Jesus. There have been times when the nature of blood has also been the source of a great deal of discrimination. It hadn't been all that many years ago where they made a distinction between the blood from a person that was white to the blood of a person that was black. And there were medical professionals, again, many decades ago now, but they thought it was not proper to, say, give the blood from a black person to white or vice versa because the blood supposedly in their mind was different. But, of course, now medically we know better than that. There is truly different types of blood, but skin color doesn't determine the different type. In fact, you and I could each have the blood of a black person as long as it met the type of you and me, and it would be perfectly healthy, and it would be perfectly fine in a medical way. When you think about the nature of that blood, isn't it amazing that we see the New Testament go to such great lengths to help us appreciate the unity that we enjoy in Jesus. In James chapter 2, it's highlighted in words like these. You recall that James, in such a practical way, addressed the matter of rich versus poor. And he asked these questions. What if a poor person came into your assembly? Would you invite him to sit near the back? But on the other hand, if a person came in who was wealthy and had rings and obvious money, would you invite him to sit in a rather privileged place at the front? There are some congregations for which that might be true these days. But we read in verses 4 and 5, James clearly says, If you do that, you are guilty of evil thoughts and evil actions. You're guilty of sin. For money doesn't make the distinction of what's faithful and what's not. Today, what if a poor person were to come to our assembly? Would we treat him any differently than a wealthy person? Would we treat an educated person any different than one that was challenged in that regard? That kind of question does challenge all of us individually, doesn't it? That we be not prejudiced or partial based on those things. Paul did say in 1 Timothy 5.21, Let nothing be done in partiality. For we do remember that Jesus, as well as Paul, was able to say, God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that fears God and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The wording of Acts 10, verses 34 and 35. For all those reasons, we may come then to the close of our lesson this evening. And we might remember that throughout the centuries, racism and other kinds of distinctions have led to such problems and sometimes even in the church. What happened to the church shortly after the Civil War? After Abraham Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation, and after the slaves were freed at the conclusion of the great Civil War of our nation, how did churches in the 1870s and 1880s bond together black and white to recognize one body in Christ? That makes an interesting study. 
And when we looked at the restoration movement some few months ago now, we appreciated a few of those thoughts, the great work that was done in appreciating the unity seen in that day and time. But for now, may we each strive to recognize from 1 Corinthians 1 verse number 10, the closing thought of our lesson this evening. Wasn't it Paul who to that church in Corinth? And that church was the melting pot of the ancient world. It was a place where major roadways in almost every direction converged. There were people from far distant places, rurally, urbanly. There were those educated and not, and yet in that city there was a congregation of the Lord's people. And to that church, Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. They were to appreciate the unity among them more than the differences between them. And today, isn't it still that unity that serves as such a strong centerpiece to the church of our Lord? Because we look inwardly and understand that immortal spirits are those that need Jesus. Tonight, as we come near the close of this lesson, we have looked then at of one, and that closing slide or that closing verse has on it the wording of Jesus in John 17, verses 20 and 21, where again Jesus prayed for the unity of those that would believe in Him. As we close this lesson, might we do so by reflecting briefly again on of one from Acts 17, 26. A unity in regard to the reality of sin. A unity in regard to the need of salvation through Jesus, which is found in the church. And also a unity as we see of one, we all have a common origin. Tracing our history to Noah, to Adam. Tonight as we think about that unison and that unity, may we appreciate that this universal character is what allows us to be brothers and sisters in Christ in such a feature that we look not on the differences of skin color or on other differences that may appear, but we are thankful that we all have access to the blessed blood of Jesus and we can enjoy salvation and redemption through it. Have you availed yourself of that salvation offer? Jesus came and He invites one and all to come. He doesn't just invite those of a certain skin color or those that are of certain physical appearance. He invites everybody, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28-30. And He died that all of us might be saved. Have you availed yourself of that offer that He's made? The plan of salvation demands that you believe Him to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and be baptized. If you have attended to that need in your life, but since then you've become unfaithful, come back to your first love. Revelation 2, verses 5 and following. Remind us that the church in Ephesus was told to come back to their first love and the Lord's telling you to do the same tonight. If we could help you in doing that by praying on your behalf, we'd be honored to do so. If either of these things would be the need in your life this evening, won't you come, in fact, even now, while together we stand and while we sing the selected song.